We at Global Nomad Hacks are peace heroes. By playing Peace and Harmony program during this episode, we help create one million pockets of peace by dissolving stress and tension. To be your own peace hero and get your own copy, go to peaceandharmonydownload.com. Welcome back to Global Nomad Hacks. I am excited to introduce to you a new friend today. His name is Ray Blackney, and he is a pajama entrepreneur. Another digital nomad like many of us, but he has a really interesting and exciting story. And I can't wait to hear more about being a polyglot and moving around the world fluidly and being a global citizen. He's calling in today from Mexico, lovely, lovely country to live in. And I'm sure we'll get to hear why and how he ended up there. Welcome, Ray. Heidi, it's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me on. So tell us a little bit about how you ended up being the pajama entrepreneur. That's, I mean, we all of us have gotten used to the lower half of the pajamas, right? You know, in COVID. But clearly, when you've been doing it for longer, there's a lot more story behind it. That's it. Um, so, you know, my background was corporate America, computer programming. We were talking earlier, you know, I lived near you for a little bit down in Southern, you know, in the South Bay, working in Silicon Valley as a computer programmer. But I have been running and building online businesses for the last 12 years. And half of my quote unquote business clothes now have moth holes in them because I simply haven't used them in so long. And the only clothes I buy consistently are pajamas. So I decided to start using, you know, I don't see people most days. So I just wake up and I roll into my office and I sit down, start working there. And eventually I stopped getting embarrassed about showing up to meetings sometimes in my pajamas as well as people knew. It's like, Ray, you work at home, you know, don't bother changing for us. So I didn't. So that's why other people started calling me the pajama entrepreneur because I was like, yeah, you're building six and seven figure businesses, but you're at home in your pajamas every day. My wife is kind of embarrassed by it, but I'm like, (laughs) she she gets over it. So when you present on stage, do you wear pajamas? I haven't built up the guts to do that yet, but I definitely, definitely want to. You know, I'm like, would people think that's gimmicky? Because I really do just work in these all day. I mean, totally. (laughs) why not? I might have to do that at some point. Once I've done a few more big stage and my name maybe gets out there, then you kind of get to the level where like you can kind of just do whatever you want and people you know, people just think it's quirky. So, you know, I hope to do that one day. For sure. I mean, I think it makes a big difference if it's just part of who you are. People appreciate the authenticity and it also helps them identify, oh, wait, there's the pajama guy. You know, who yeah. knows? You can yeah, get no, some I good mean, sponsors. They probably some side. really good pajama companies that want to get oh, behind you. Right? I'll get sponsored by them to go <laughs> up on stage with Pajamagram. You know, that's a great idea. I, I'm going to have to start. Once people start speaking on stages again, this is something I'll have to re-examine once we're able to travel again. That's awesome. So is your wife Mexican or how did you end up in yes. Mexico? Okay. I joined the Peace Corps. That's how I ended ah. up in Mexico. So I was working in the U.S., you know, Silicon Valley, but then the bubble burst, the first bubble burst back in 2002, 2003. And I was doing consulting for a Fortune 500 company at the time. And they said, hey, you want to stay on here? And back then you're like, hey, stable job? Yeah, I'll take it. So I ended up working in a corporate environment. I'll be honest, it was a great company to work for. They, you know, they always showed up on those, you know, top 50 places in the US to work. They treated us really well, but it wasn't a very fulfilling job. I mean, Mm -hmm. you know, if I did my job well, they were in a specific niche in the chemical industry. And so we sold more of this chemical compound. Great. You know, if I did my job well today, that's all that happened. So it wasn't, you know, luckily it wasn't like a bad chemical compound, but it just wasn't very fulfilling. I'd known about the Peace Corps my whole life. So my dad was a Peace Corps volunteer in the Philippines. 
after we graduated, we were talking about this from, he went to Harvard and then he graduated and he went to do something. So he joined the Peace Corps and they sent him to the Philippines where he met my mom, who was Peace Corps staff. She was one of the people who helped train the Peace Corps volunteers in the culture and the language in the Philippines. I found out when I was 30 that they dated for six weeks before getting married and they've been happily married now for over 45 years. So it worked out for them in the long term. So I'd known about the Peace Corps my whole life and I was like, okay, I need something more interesting. There was a saying on TV, there was a commercial on TV at the time, but the US Navy and with all my respect, my uncle was the Navy, my respects. If somebody starts shooting at me, I'm starting to to run the other way as fast as physically possible. So that wasn't an option. But the quote was, if they were to write a book about your life, would anybody want to read it? Oh, I like that. Yeah, 26 or 27 at the time. And I remember thinking, I'm like, if I keep on this track, absolutely not. And I come from a family that luckily has had very interesting stuff. You know, my grandfather was the first minister of the first all-black church in Zimbabwe. And my dad grew up there. My great-grandfather was an exchange professor in Peking and China, when the Boxer Revolution happened, they had to run out. So all these kind of interesting stories in my family. And I'm like, if I'm going to sit in a cube for the next 40 years and write code, wow, (laughs) I'll be ending that that line really, really quickly. So I saw the commercial literally the next day. I was sitting in the office writing code and I'm like, yeah, that's enough. So I went to PeaceCorps.gov. I filled out the application. And four months later, I had sold my house, sold my car and was on a plane to Mexico to start my service, my two-year service in the Peace Corps for $150 a month salary. That is awesome. $150 a month, well, in some countries, probably goes pretty far. You know, if they paid for the place I lived, I didn't feel bad. I mean, you know, my girlfriend, who's my wife now, at the time, we would go out like camping. We were in southern Mexico in a state called Chiapas. So we would camp on these old, ancient Mayan ruins that weren't even on, you know, they didn't have a name. You didn't have to pay to get in these places. They were on every corner. So we would camp out there. That doesn't cost you any money. You know, we would take the public transportation. Most people around us made a lot less money than we did. Because in addition to my salary, my wife, you know, she's college educated, went to study in the, you know, she studied in the US. So she had her income. So yeah, we we did not feel, it was kind of a cheating Peace Corps experience because, you know, everybody thinks, oh, you're in a mud hut. No, I had high speed internet. I had HBO. <laughs> I mean, you know, I, was, I wasn't suffering too bad. There's a good Thai restaurant, Indian restaurant down the street that we've gone to, you know, as well. So it, it was, it was a great two years, but it wasn't quite as rough as people might think it was. Well, I mean, I think you get the whole range of it, but what you were doing was something that was building your story, not just for the sake of the story, but for the experience of giving back. And I think, you know, that's that's an honorable and, and a wonderful thing to do. And who cares? You got high-speed internet, like, that's good, you know, so you can share mm-hmm. your story. So your wife is Mexican. So I know you're one of your things is that you're a polyglot. So can you talk a little bit, and, and that's something you also really use in your work. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah. So I wish I could tell you I had this grand plan to learn multiple languages when I was a kid and that's how it all happened. Unfortunately, no, that's not the case. So my mother's Filipina and she spoke Tagalog to us. My dad's American, spoke English. And I grew up in Istanbul, Turkey. So I, all my friends were Turkish and I was speaking Turkish. The school I went to was the international school. So they made us learn French. So those were the languages I grew up with. And then when I got older, I moved to Mexico, married a Mexican. I learned Spanish. My sister's got one up on me. She lived in China for a while. So she speaks Mandarin as well. So I, I got to catch up with her. But that was kind of our polyglot journey. And then pure serendipity. You know, I went from, you know, computer engineering to starting online businesses. And we run one of the biggest online language schools in the world. And so kind of my business became this whole, the whole world of language education and language learning. That became what I do for a living. That's awesome. And I mean, I, I think the whole space of online languages, for me personally, during the quarantine, that was sort of what I did, just because it was a great way to keep my brain busy. It felt like I was doing something positive every day. 
But so I'm curious, because one of the things that I did, it wasn't necessarily to learn a new language. For me, it was about transitioning between languages, because that's where I get stuck. And so when, you know, we have a place in France, and but when we're there, we're usually with our Swedish family. And then, you know, I'm obviously American born. And so there's English mixed in. And when the group of people that we're with speak all three languages, so it tends to be a real mix of all three. And but then you know you go to turn to the waiter and it's like which language comes out of your mouth? It tends to be a mix, a mix of all three, and they look at you like you got twelve heads. So I started doing Duolingo, you know, fifteen minutes in each language, just to help my brain sort of focus on one language at a time. And I've heard before that polyglots really the struggle is that the more languages you learn, the less good you are at your native language because your brain picks the best word for whatever it is that you're looking at or whatever you're trying to say. It doesn't necessarily pick the best word in English. It picks the best word and some languages are more dynamic than others. Is that something that you work with and you can help or, or is that, have you experienced that challenge yourself? Yeah. So there's two different types of language learning. That I found again, I, there were the three languages I grew up speaking, and I find that that doesn't happen very much in those. Because I mean, since I was, I don't know, my son's nine months old, he hasn't started speaking yet, but I'm assuming you know they, they'll start pretty soon. It wasn't a conscious thing. So there are studies out there that show when you learn a language before you're two or three, your brain actually creates new neural pathways, right? So you can actually kind of follow them along different paths, and they don't get as crossed. Mm-hmm. The languages I learned later as an adult, which is French and Spanish, I find that's not the case. I find I get a lot more crossing in those because, for example, when I speak Spanish, I use my Turkish accent. It's a lot closer to the American accent and a lot closer to the Filipino accent, oddly enough. And I do get wires. If I speak Spanish for a while and I flip into Turkish, woo, those words are crossed all over the place. So something, I must be using the similar pathways that I used for that. And my French is mediocre at best. So I don't, you know, I think it's just my French isn't very good more than any kind of crossing. But I find it in Turkish and Spanish that they cross a lot. So I think the way that you learn language is probably kind of shows which one of those will happen more often, right? If you grew up speaking them, you flip between them without even thought, even the words and stuff like that. But the ones you learn as an adult, since you've built it maybe on top of another language, then you start having these kind of crossing things. We do have teachers that specialize at Live Lingua in working with students to do these kind of things, because it's a very common problem, especially people who get to kind of a higher level in their languages. It's not about conjugating verbs. It's not about learning those new structures. It's just a matter of practice and kind of getting your mind used to flipping between the languages. Even for me, since I live in Mexico, but I speak English, I work in English every day, but we have people who help us in the house and you know friends out there. I might have to flip into Spanish right after this. And sometimes it takes me two to three minutes to get mm-hmm. that kind of motor running where kind of my, my Spanish stumbles for a few minutes. And then once I get going, I'm good to go. It's a practice thing. You know, the more I flipped, the faster it happens. And if I don't do it for six months, then I'm sure I'd be really slow at like turning your motor on for the first time in six months. It would take a long time for that to happen. Oh, for sure. And I think, I mean, I I definitely feel that as well. When we go to to France, I mean, French was the language that I learned in school. So it was something that I felt very comfortable with. I had worked in Belgium and in France and it was just for me, that was my language. And then I married a Swede. And so when I first moved to Sweden, I mean, I learned Swedish at 30. But for me, people thought that I was, they couldn't place where I was from, because I guess I spoke it with a French accent, not an American accent. And so they were, they were like, where is... And, happens and, to me in Spanish. And, they and, say, are you from Argentina? I'm and, like, I'll take it. It's a Spanish-speaking country, <laughs> at, least, you know, at least, right? So I exactly. totally understand. Well, and also I had come there from Brussels, where 
There are so many different mixes of languages. Even the English what we use there was sort of this internationalized English that mm-hmm. I would come home to the States and people would be like, I don't understand you. For one thing, you're like totally dated in the <laughs> the words you're using, but there are also, there's, you know, you mix in things because it's convenient or you're just used mm-hmm. to, they're like directly translated from other expressions that are directly translated from another language that if you don't get the context, they don't make any sense at all. My sister-in-law and our, our niece, they live in Brussels. You know, they work for the European Union. So we understand to, when they come and visit us here, especially with our niece, because she's learning Spanish, but not living in a Spanish-speaking country. So every once in a while, she'll throw out words and we're sitting here like, what? But she's only five or six, right? Yeah. So she doesn't really distinguish because when she speaks at home, she can just kind of flip. She can put a sentence together between German you know, Flemish, French, whatever languages they're speaking in Spanish, and the people in the house understand. It doesn't work with us. So she kind of says that. I'm like, I don't think that's a Spanish word. I'm like, I'm not a native Spanish speaker, but I'm pretty sure that word was not in Spanish that she just said. And my <laughs> wife is like, yeah, that wasn't Spanish. I don't know what she said either. So yeah, it's definitely, I'm sure she'll get better when she gets older. But right now, she just totally just mixes them together. Well, and going back to your thing of being able to, like learning them at a young age, I remember listening to my kids when we were living in Sweden. And they'd be watching, we had all these old American videos on VCR tapes that we had brought over with us, right? They were just like kids' cartoons and things like that. Of course, my, I wanted my kids to get, you know, the Frosty the Snowman and, the, you know, the Schoolhouse Rock and all that stuff. Uh-huh. Anyway, so they would watch those with their Swedish friends, and they would be simultaneously translating to their friends in Swedish without even thinking yeah. about it. And I'd come up the stairs, I'm like, how is this? five-year-old doing simultaneous translation from English to Swedish to their friends. It's like their brain Brain elasticity, right? Amazing. Amazing. Mm -hmm. It's so cool to watch. And that language is just a really incredible thing. It really is. It's the future, you know, especially with the world kind of going into globalization right now, we're seeing it much more because this recording is happening during COVID, right? Where the benefits, and there are downsides, of course, to globalization, but the benefits of globalization, now that we're not actually having this close connection like we used to, you know, be able to travel whenever you felt like and just hop on a plane, you'll be in Europe in a few hours, right? Losing that is kind of showing us what we had before and the ability to speak another language, you know, plus all the brain effects of it. You know, there's they show that early onset Alzheimer's can be put off. Bilingual people or trilingual have like five years longer with that kind of stuff when, they, when they're learning another language. But there's also the personal benefits of being able to speak another language. There's a big difference between, I'll say Mexico, where I am right now. Coming to Mexico and going to Cancun and staying in an all-inclusive resort where everybody speaks English is a very different experience from coming to Mexico, being able to at least speak a little bit of Spanish and being able to interact with the locals. Your experience is going to be so much richer if you have the latter, where you're able to kind of interact with the locals in their own language. At least try. Nobody's going to make fun of you. I mean, nobody says, oh my goodness, look at that. This guy's... No, they actually take it as a sign of respect that you're at least trying Mm -hmm. to speak their language. And they will be very accommodating for you. And it will open all these doors and experiences that otherwise you never, ever are going to have. So that's kind of one of the great benefits of learning another language. As I said, I'm biased towards Spanish simply because if you learn Spanish, you speak English, you can start driving in Alaska and make your way all the way through to Chile and pretty much communicate with people in their native language. Even in Brazil, I like the Portuguese sounds like kind of a drunk Spanish to me. So I jokingly (laughs) say, drink three beers and speak Spanish and they'll probably understand you in Brazil. So (laughs) That's funny. I, I like that. Language is, to me, has always been such a gift. And I think, you know, it really depends on the culture of your family as to 
you know, we try to do sort of different language night dinners and stuff. It's not that consistent. But I remember even growing up, my grandparents were very much, they loved, they were big travelers and they were artists and they would go travel around the world and go on these artist retreats with, you know, sort of one expert. And then they would, you know, come back with these fabulous paintings. But their whole philosophy was pretty much, you need to learn the baseline in any language. And so you don't necessarily have to do it perfectly, but you have to at least be able to say, please, thank you and count to a hundred, you know, and, and where's the bathroom? You know, there's sort of these baseline pieces that can open the door to, you know, to human communication and to socialization. We call that survival language skills. We actually have specific courses at LiveLingua on all of them. And it's meant for tourists. They're usually between a, you know, a seven to a 15 hour course. It's not, and they don't focus at all on grammar. And that's mm-hmm. kind of the point of the survival. It's more, hey, how do you survive in a restaurant? How do you, you know, give directions in a taxi? How do you ask for directions? How do you negotiate in a store? You know, here are the numbers. Here's how do you say that's too expensive, that's cheaper. That's it. That's it. I mean, you know, nothing about conjugating to be in present tense and the past imperative. That doesn't matter for survival. If you can at least make that commitment, you know, like that seven hours of commitment, there's softwares, there's, I'll plug my free Spanish learning podcast. It's built on this methodology, right? It's just about teaching you basic conversation skills. You Pimsler, for example, they do a similar thing out there. If you make that commitment of just kind of getting that basic level before you travel, no matter what country you travel to, I promise you, your travel, your experience will be much better than if you hadn't made that effort before you took the trip. It doesn't matter what it's Japan, Europe, South America, Africa, it doesn't matter. Learn the basics and your trip will be entirely different and better as a result of having put in that work. Now, I have to be a little bit of a devil's advocate because coming from, I used to work in sort of the tech space as well, but more on the wearable tech. And now there's a lot of really cool wearable tech. I haven't tried it yet that will actually do the translation for you. You can just stick it right in your ear and whatever people say, it will be translated into your mother tongue and then you can, you know, it just basically, it's a cheat. What are your feelings on that? I think if you're traveling, it's great. It works better with some languages than others. So I, you know, before COVID, I just, I spoke at a conference in Thailand. Yeah, Thai, it didn't work at all. I mean, I tried throwing it through the translator. They wouldn't have any understanding. We tried in Japan. It didn't work as well. English to Spanish works decently. I mean, at least it's communicative. The challenges you have with the ones with those earpiece ones is obviously you understand, but that doesn't mean you can speak to them. They have to have one as well in order for the communication to be two ways. But you can use Google. I mean, just put Google Translate on your phone. You type it in. Oh, yeah. It sounds like a robot speaking, but at least the words come out. And, you know, it'll get you there. But there's a difference between, for example, doing that, which will kind of get you out, help you survive, get you out of tough situations. But the locals will not say, wow, this guy's making an effort. It's like, no, this guy pulled out his phone and typed the word in there. It's not that he's making an effort to communicate with me and understand my culture. As opposed to if you try speaking it yourself, your reception will be totally different than somebody just typing into a computer and using Google Translate or even using one of those apps and all the rest. of it. I think it will change. I'm a computer programmer. I'm a geek. So I don't think it's impossible that one day we are from the universal translator in Star Trek is not a physical impossibility for us, right? Where a computer is just going to be real-time translating it. We can all speak our own languages and we'll do it, I'd say, 30 to 50 years probably until that's we're there yet. A lot of languages are so Mm context-based that translation becomes really, really difficult. Not so bad with the Latin language. That's why English, French, you know, Translating between those, we generally kind of English, French, Spanish, Italian, we get them generally right. But you throw in Japanese, you throw in Mandarin, you throw in Thai, you throw in, you know, Bahanese from Indonesia. There's, the same word means 30 different things, depending mm-hmm. on how you say it. There's 
different tonal variants, which I can't even hear because I never grew up listening to them. So when I was in China, I was ordering cha, but apparently I was ordering a dog because I was the A was wrong. <laughs> like, it was, like the tone on my A was a little off. So those kind of things, the, the translators are going to have a lot of trouble with. Yeah. Um, and I don't think they're going to figure that out anytime soon to get past that. But to your point on Google Translate, though, I mean, we used that a lot when we were in China. You know, and now they, we actually, when we were down in Irway earlier this year, wow, we actually were there this year. That's kind of amazing to think that anything happened in 2020, but <laughs> besides quarantine. But anyway, there, it's now evolved to the extent where you can actually hold your phone over a menu and it'll translate, it'll like change the text for you, which. Try that in Japan. It did not work in Japan. Didn't work in Japan. <laughs> okay. Well, there's still no, where you like, got what? it. But it was yeah. fascinating to see how fast the technology has evolved. Mm. So you can sort of say, well, Okay, that looks maybe I'll have that. Like it, Imagine you know, you may be not being right? a dog, right? <laughs> yeah, I mean, once we have glasses, you know, I used to wear glasses until I got LASIK, but you put those on and you imagine you're like staring at the menu and it like real time just kind of puts the translation on top of it. I don't think we're too far away from that. It's yeah. just a matter of translating. Again, the literal translation of menus, I can see the difficulty there because mm -hmm. I mean, you know, you literally translate it. And even in English, we have like words, hey, um, pigs in a blanket. So, for example, right? Yeah, a Chinese person goes and looks at it. What? You're going to have a pig and throw a, sh a, sheet, a sheet over them and yeah. serve it to me? I mean, it doesn't make sense. And that's what happened when we went to Japan. It was giving us these translations, which were literal word-for-word -word translations of what the menu was. But in English, I'm like, no. I'm like, I'm not going to order whatever, you know, whatever that's saying. But obviously, to if I knew what the dish was, it's probably got nothing to do with what the name said, right? Oh, absolutely. I've been thinking like one of my favorite appetizers is devils on horseback. And that is not exactly something that would translate because it's like, well, no, what is that? No. <laughs> They're like, what? Yeah. So that, that's, that's those kind of things that the translators have a lot of issue with that if you learn a language, you kind of get, you get past it because you have the cultural understanding behind it. Yep. Uh, learning a language is also learning the culture. That's one of the things we teach at Live Lingua. It's not just about learning the grammar and the verbs. One thing that I think a lot of school programs struggle with is that they're kind of in, in that methodology. And when I learned French, it was the same. I conjugated être till my head hurt. I mean, you know, I, and I was like, it didn't help me communicate at all. I was just sitting there conjugating at all these, all these different tenses because you didn't have a context for it. I'm like, yeah. why am I conjugating être for three weeks? I mean, like, I, I know it's to be, I know to be is important, but really that's, I need more than that to really make this stick in my mind. So if you're going to learn a language, get the cultural, you know, they use it this way because the history and the stories behind it and there's all that makes it much easier to learn and kind of kind of retain the information when you can associate it with stories and kind of different images in your head. Yeah, for sure. I mean, it's very, language is very visual. People don't think about that. That's, you know, they're like, it's all auditory, but it isn't at all. There's so much more to it. And it's like the whole, how it's communicated in, in many languages, if you don't use your hands, you're saying something completely different. I train myself not to do it as much because I'm a much a very big hand user. So I mean, I'm generally, when, when I'm giving talks on stage, I'm all over the place. And I watch myself on video. I'm like, I don't even remember doing that, you know, kind of thing. But it's just part of, you know, how I grew up speaking. I think in Turkey, they did it a lot. And that's probably where I picked it up. Yeah, for sure. And then, I mean, there's the whole language or culture around coffee, for example, like, you know, understanding the the subtleties of what people are asking what does it mean when someone invites you for a coffee? How are you supposed to take that and respond and, and all of this and how you excuse yourself when you're <laughs> like when you're done without offending someone? There's so much more subtlety to language that is beyond the words. Is that That's something that you right. also worked with your with your language teaching? Is there a cultural Absolutely. element to it? All of our teachers are actually natives from their country. So if you're taking Spanish, 
you'll have a native Spanish speaker and you can yeah, pick your countries. We have, I think, about 15 different countries. We don't cover all, every Spanish speaking country. For example, Cuba is a little bit rough to get a Cuban Spanish speaker because their internet doesn't work very well there. But, you know, if you're Mexico, Spain, Argentina, Uruguay, Peru, we have teachers from all of it. So you can kind of, kind of get paired. And this applies for your French teachers. We have French teachers who are from, are from France. Our Portuguese teachers are from Brazil or from Portugal. You know, Chinese teachers, all that kind of stuff are from Arabic teachers from all over the Arabic speaking world. And they will teach you that with their languages because there's so much more to it. You said it well. You know, when you excuse yourself in Mexico, you actually have to say bye to everybody in the party. You don't just walk out the door. That's considered rude. When you're meeting people, what's the common thing you ask in the United States? Oh, what do you do for a living, right? That's a strange question in Spanish. I mean, in Mexico, if you ask that, like, why do you care? But when they ask you, hey, are you married? You have any kids? <laughs> I mean, that's the first question they'll do it because it's more about, it's a more family centric culture. That is the question you'll ask. But in the US, if somebody said, hey, you married? I mean, we'll just kind of look at you like, what? I just Interesting met you. Why, you. what are you asking so much personal stuff? But that's, if you don't do that in Latin America, they will look at you strange. If you ask about work, what do you do for a living, all the rest of it, they'll just like, why do you care? Now I have kids. Here's my wife. I mean, that's what I want to talk about. That's what I'm comfortable talking about. So there's a lot you have to learn when you come to it. I look, you know, I learned about this stuff in the Peace Corps because the Peace Corps does a great job of the first three months you come to every country, it's cultural and language training. And that's what we moved over to live lingua as well, was kind of the cultural and language training because I saw how well it worked. Within three months, I went from zero to conversational in Spanish as a result of it. I was still conjugating verbs wrong, you know, getting the the gender wrong, but that doesn't stop communication. I yeah. mean, if I, you know, even in French, if you, you know, use la instead of le, they'll know what you're talking about. They're just like, yeah, that's not the right word, but they'll know exactly what you said. And in Spanish, it's the same. You just use the wrong gender pronoun. They don't care. They know exactly what you're talking about. They know you're not a native speaker. They're not even going to stop you. I mean, they're like, that's not a big enough deal that, you know, you're worried about it. I mean, there's all these, all these language experiences that one can have. Oh, if they, absolutely. If they're willing to take the risk and learn the language. Well, and I think that there, there's a lot of value to that. I think it's really important what you were saying about just being able to communicate. And you can perfect it later if it's important to you. I mean, I speak Swedish fluently, but I know that I make mistakes. And I know that, I mean, I learned it when I was 30. And Spanish but, 28, I'm exactly the but same. But people appreciate your, you know, you're using the language and just making the effort. And what I've been doing, that whole thing I was talking about with Duolingo when I was just playing around with it, part of it was doing Swedish so that I could actually learn how to spell things because I wasn't, <laughs> I, I don't write it very often. I read in That's Swedish. Me. I generally, because everybody speaks English, I generally will respond in English just because I can, you know, just flow of consciousness write and not be like, oh, I spelled that wrong. I mean, there's a lot of weird little subtleties in the language that, you know, the phonetics are very different. And so switching back and forth there can be really tricky. Same in Spanish and Turkish, oddly enough for me, because I grew up speaking Turkish, but I never actually studied in Turkish, mm -hmm. right? I never went to a Turkish school. I knew enough of reading and writing that, you know, I could read signs and all the rest of it. I've never read a book in my life in Turkish. I mean, you know, I never had to. Spanish is the same. I don't really know where the accents go on the words because I, you know, I learned to speak. I can write emails that make sense. And it's like everything else. If I don't put an accent, they still understand what I'm saying. So your wife is Mexican. And do you have kids? Right. We have a nine-month-old who you might hear yell in the oh, background. Because congratulations. As much as I tell him I'm in a podcast now, he doesn't seem to appreciate that. <laughs> and he still thinks it's a great time to walk up to my office door and slam on it and yell a little bit. Well, he doesn't walk it, but he crawls up and he stands up and then he just flaps the door for a little bit and then he crawls away. So Part of the reason I'm asking you about the, the kids thing is because obviously you grew up in a multilingual household. Some people are better about being, you know, very concise. Okay. One parent only speaks one language, the other parent only speaks the other language. 
or if then they might have a different language at school or, you know, from a nanny or whatever. What's your philosophy on that? And how are you doing with being uh, strict about it if you are doing it that way? We are. So right now, English and Spanish, I speak to them in English. My wife speaks to them in Spanish. Luckily, you know, we both speak the languages, so there's no communication error. Once we're about, he's about two or three, we're looking to move to probably Southeast Asia. We're seeing, we're looking at Singapore because we'd actually like him to learn Mandarin as well. We don't want to live in China. I've been there. It's an f- interesting place to visit, my, but you know, there's a lot of limitations in living there, especially when you work online with the Great Firewall, I think they call it, right? So yeah, just getting by that, that would be too much of a hindrance for our professional careers. So we're looking at Singapore, which apparently Mandarin, I think it's Tamil and, or Hindu, Hindi and English are the three languages that are spoken there. So we want to go there and put him in a Mandarin immersion school in Singapore. So he'll be able to speak English, Spanish, and hopefully Mandarin like a native speaker when he grows up. I think that'll theoretically let him speak with 65% of the world in their native language, which should be a pretty decent you know, advantage for him as he's growing up if he can speak all three of those without an accent like a native speaker. How does your mother feel about him not getting the Tagalog? I don't think she's that concerned. <laughs> because unfortunately, Tagalog is not a very spoken language outside of like Los Angeles, maybe San Francisco and the Philippines. I mean, you know, they're just very large Filipino populations mm-hmm. and almost all educated Filipinos speak English. I mean, yes. the national language in the Philippines is English. So there's really, you know, if you go to smaller villages where they, they might not speak English, but otherwise, you know, if you're American, you go to the Philippines in any major city, Manila, Cebu, most tourist areas, you'll speak English and so will everybody else. It's not that useful a language outside of speaking with other Filipinos. Yeah. Have you been? Oh, yeah. I used to own a chocolate factory there for about five or six years until about last year, I sold off my shares to my partner. So yeah, we used to go back all the time. Once a year for about a month or two, we'd go back to the Philippines. We're dying to go when the the quarantine is lifted and we're able to go. We actually have a family connection there. My great, great uncle was the governor general to the Philippines. Oh, wow. Cameron Forbes, you might have seen some he had apparently founded the polo club there, and there's a bunch of different <laughs> things that my family like probably knows who he is. I moved away when I was 11 months old, so my knowledge of Filipino history is sadly pretty limited. Yeah, because, well, I mean, you know, I have I never, never school there. Yeah, I've never been, but I at several conferences, I've run into these women who were very involved in the anniversary, the 100 year anniversary, I think, of the polo club, and we happened to be sitting at the same dining table at this <laughs> event in Beijing, of all places, and. Somehow, well, they started talking about their work, and I was like, "Oh, I have a you know family connection to that." And and then it turned out that they have been desperately trying to get a photograph of his summer home on Cape Cod because apparently there's a, he built one that sort of is the same house man, called Mansion House in the Philippines, and uh, they were trying to find a picture of it, and I was like. I opened up my phone, flipped through. My sister and I are the caretakers of this house. Showed them oh, the picture goodness. of this house and was like, is this the house you need? <laughs> <laughs> my aunt, my great aunt lived, lived and died on Cape Cod. But yeah, so, you know, I, I used to spend a lot of summers down in Cape Cod as well. So I think yeah. we, we were talking before getting on about our connection to that. But my, yeah, my great, great aunt, that's where she, she's my great aunt, my great, great aunt. I can't remember. Uh, you know, she was 80 when I met her, but on, on Helen, she lived in, you know, in a nice house on Cape Cod. And we've spent a lot of time down there as well. Yeah. No, it's a beautiful place to be. We were actually just down there this summer. I drove, my husband and I drove across the country because we couldn't fly to help my mother move into a retirement community. And while we were there, we had two beautiful months of 
sort of in a, in our bubble with my mother. So it was really, it was lovely. And uh, it was nice to be back on the East Coast for a little while, but always like to come back. <laughs> it's a nice place to visit. Like you, I'm, I've been a coast person. I've lived in the West Coast and the East Coast, little little time in Ohio. The people in Ohio consider themselves East Coast, in Cleveland at least, they thought they were East Coast, but in the more rural areas, they say they consider themselves Midwest. So it's kind of that border between the two while they're there. But generally, I consider myself an East Coaster. My English is like New England, Boston English, right? So yeah. Very much. No, it sounds very familiar. It just sounds like home to <laughs> exactly. me. And actually, my roommate in boarding school was from Canton, Ohio, and I, she always said she was from the East Coast. And I was like, what do you mean? My girlfriend like, for the Ohio. first year of college, she was from Canton, Ohio as well. So yeah, <laughs> exactly that. Exactly oh, that. Oh, my goodness. So many zigzags. That's what I love about meeting other global citizens. You find mm -hmm. that there's been so many overlaps in our lives, and, and really, it makes the world a much smaller place and reminds us about how much we have in common rather than differences. It has been such a pleasure having you on the show today. I want to make sure that folks can find you and find your work. What's the best way for them to reach you if they want to learn more about Live Lingua or have you come speak and in your pajamas? You know, how can people find you? Sure. So if you'd like to kind of get my speaker page, it's rayblakeney.com, R-A-Y-B-L-A-K-N-E-Y.com. I have two primary businesses, though I have multiple others where I'm investing in. And I'm Live Lingua, so it's L-I-V-E, L-I-N-G-U-A.com. That's my biggest business. We're one of the top language schools in the world. And we like to say we're the only one that was bootstrapped. It was started by me and my wife. She was the teacher. I answered the emails. All our competitors have 10 to $20 million piece of money behind them. So we're that little scrappy. They're the little scrappy ones trying to go up against the big boys. And my latest project is something called podcasthawk.com, Hawk the Animal. And it is a software product that actually helps you get booked on podcasts on autopilot, which is actually how I got in touch with you because I was beta testing it. So <laughs> yeah, that's how you and I got in touch as well. So podcasthawk.com. If you want to contact me, you can either go through my page or just send it to the customer support. And either one of those, they'll get it to me. Facebook, you can also find me. I just look up Ray Blakeney and find somebody who's sword fighting, which is what I do for fun, Japanese sword fighting. So <laughs> look for an image of sword fighting and that's me. So click on that, add me, and I'd be happy to talk to you. Awesome. Well, so many great resources there, and we'll make sure that we have links on the show notes so folks can find you. Such a pleasure. I am so glad that your software worked and that you reached out. I have to say, a lot of these sort of matching tools that people have reached out to me before, I'm like, why are you reaching out to me? There's really no match there. So you clearly have a good accuracy factor with whatever you're working with, because you are a perfect guest. I loved having you on the show, and I hope we'll stay in touch and let me know if you're ever up in this area. And who knows? Maybe we'll run into each other in Boston. Likewise. Yeah, likewise. If you come to Mexico, let me know. Oh, well, we try to do an annual trip down to Tequila. It's one of our favorite areas. It's beautiful, beautiful hiking and obviously great boutique tequila places. So. Yeah, I can't drink tequila due to a fraternity accident in college. Since Oh, yeah. No, yeah. we only do the sipping tequila type. None of yeah, the yeah. Like, cheap tequila. Yeah, yeah. Don't do 16 shots in 15 minutes. I would not recommend that. Cheap tequila uh, is not a good day, idea. I can't drink tequila. <laughs> How about Mezcal? <laughs> it tastes the same to me. I mean, my body thinks it's the same thing, so sadly, no. But, uh, you know, I, I like the beers, so, you know, we, we can definitely do, do some of those. Sounds good. Anyway, it has been such a pleasure having you on the show. Thank you for joining us today, and thank you, Global Nomads, for joining us today. I hope you enjoyed today's show. And if you haven't already, don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss any of the great upcoming episodes. And if you really like the show, we always appreciate a rating and review. And please do let us know if you do that, because we love to give you a little love back. 
So thank you for joining us today. We look forward to next time. Bye-bye for now.